Hey, it's Yana Bud. I've been working with young people and adults for more than 40 years, helping them to live their best life. Now on this podcast, I do it for you too. That's why we call it At Your Best, so I can help you become your best self each week. So you can let's explore stories from all across Canada and celebrate how strong we really are, even when we feel at our weakest. We've seen homelessness only grow to devastating levels across Canada, but in the face of disaster, heroes are formed people at their best, like the good heroes at Our Place Society, who have found a beautiful way to help those experiencing homelessness to keep their dignity. And just like homelessness, we've seen the opioid epidemic grow in hand. And just like before, new ways to help keep people safe, like improving accessibility and awareness in the vending machines. Yep, vending machines that can save lives. So sit back, relax, and get ready to listen to ways we can help you be at your best. I noticed an article uh, recently. It was um, the article goes it was too much. Iman on the coping with uh, on coping with the death of her husband, David Bowie. Uh, she's in the process of uh, trying to grieve privately following the death of her husband. It became too much as she felt she was a target on had a target on her head. The 67 year old model and businesswoman married the, the musician in 1992, and the pair remained together until Bowie's, Bowie's death in, from cancer in 2016 at the age of 69. Uh, speaking to British Vogue about the situation, she said it was too much, just too much to handle. We lived a private life and suddenly it felt like there was a target on me and on my daughter's head. You had people who would take pictures and sell it and then come back and say to you, I feel your pain. And it's like, no, you don't feel my pain. Get away from me. And so uh, a man who was 22-year-old daughter with Bowie, uh, Bowie, excuse me, reflected on how Starman uh, Singer encouraged her to launch her beauty brand, Iman Cosmetics, which has focused on offering a diverse range of uh, shades and colors since 1994. People ask me if uh, I influenced him. I didn't. David came to me fully informed, she said. Um, you know, it goes on to say that um, the idea of, of her loss, you know, saving a seat for him at the table, um, you know, it took a long time for him to, for her to overcome uh, some of the, the pain and suffering and the, just the, the difficulty um, and still having trouble with coping with such situations. Uh, you know, the, the, let me tell you, listen, I'll, I'll be straight up with you, right? I'm really glad that we could be all here together. And um, man, I buried my mother and my two aunts in the last nine, nine and a half months. Right. And these were my like first line aunts, right? Married to my mother's brothers. So my first line aunts, um, you know, not people you call auntie, but you know, I know lots of people have those in their lives. But these were these were people that um these were people that were in my life like forever. And uh going to the cemetery uh three times in the last nine months, actually twice in the last six weeks, lost two aunts in six weeks. Uh, one of my aunts was diagnosed with something. Uh, they did a operated on her. They thought it was going to be a successful operation. And in fact, the operation was successful, but the toll on her 85 year old body uh, was too much. And uh, there were a lot of complications. And within a week, maybe 10 days, she was gone. So probably um, she wasn't really functional at that point. So, but yeah, you know, you look back and say, you know, it was a peaceful death and, you know, at least she, you know, she went quickly and, you know, whoever is looking over us on top is obviously got some compassion and I don't know, man, none of that stuff really jives with me. How do you feel about it? I'd like to hear from you. If you ever, have you had any loss? Hopefully not, but if you have, I'd love to hear from you. 877-399-9898. You can text us at that number or give us a call. We'd love to connect with you. And uh, if not, just say, Hey, Hey, Yona, how you doing? Uh, I'd love to hear from you. I, I recognize who you are. When I look at the numbers, I see them directly in front of me on the screen. So um, appreciate if you just reach out and say howdy or share your story if you're in the mood. Um, you know, we go back to how to survive this stuff, right? How do you survive this stuff? How do you, how do you cope? How do I cope? I mean, I cope with going forward every day and doing what I do and helping as many people as I can and, you know, finding joy with my family and, and, and doing joy, you know, things with my, my, my partner, my wife that kind of distract us both. I mean, you know, this was also the uh, month of my wife's annual cancer screening test. So thankful the last eight years we've been good. And, uh, but every year, you know, that month of testing and waiting and, you know, waiting for results and, 
She does an, ex an extra test for dense breast tissue, which is through something called an Abbas machine. Uh, you pay for this. It's 230 bucks. It, it gives you a 3D dimensional look. Anyway, go through all these tests, right? So we're going through the month of testing and we're going through a bunch of loss and I'm still trying to get the fog out of my head from the loss of my mom. But for the most part, you know, we kind of get through the day. I'd be lying to say that I didn't leave a, lose a little, a little spring in my step for sure. Um, I think that since mom's passing for sure, um, definitely changed me in ways that, uh, hard to describe, but just a little foggier than I used to be. Right. So here's, here's kind of what I've been doing and I've been following some support, uh, from, uh, people that, uh, from article I read, uh, on, uh, on taps, it comes from taps, which is a tragedy assistance program for survivors, um, and how people, you know, some, some tips here on, on how to get through. And some of these work real well for me. I'm glad to share which ones do and which ones don't. Uh, but for the most part, you know, this is getting through grief, getting through loss is something that takes real work and you need to pay attention to stuff. Um, so here's some skills, here's some strategies that we can use to help you be at your best, even in a very dark time. Um, and by the way, I tell my patients and my clients, my coaching clients or my therapy patients, I tell them all that, you know, that, you know, I, depending on the kind of day I'm having, I, I, I'm straight up with them. I say, you know, here, I'm feeling a little grief today, or I'm feeling a little lost today, or I'm feeling a little lost or feeling a little anxious. And by sharing that with them, um, it really seems to make a difference. We have Debbie in Headingley, uh, and uh, she's standing by. Hi, Debbie. How are you? Hi, how are you? I'm good. Thank you so much for calling. Um, so uh, can you share with us? I mean, have you, have you had the misfortune of losing somebody recently? Yeah, well, you know what? I just have to say, I, I can't remember your name, but I just want to say, like, my dad My name's Yona. Away. Yona. Pardon me? My name is oh, Yona. Yona? Like, your name's yeah. Yona? Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, I just want to share, like, my dad passed away in 2018, yeah. and then uh, my mom passed away on, actually, my mother-in-law's birthday in 2020, and then my brother... 14 days after my mom killed while riding his motorcycle. And then in Saskatchewan, I had five other family members pass away. And, so uh, yeah, so in 2020, I had seven deaths. And when someone says to me, you'll get over it and blah, 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 blah. You know what? It hurts forever. Still yeah. hurts till this day. And uh, nobody can tell you how long your grieving will be because it's, forever and i miss well, them all very dearly well first of all i, I want to i want to tell you that i i hope they find a, a help a happier place in the next life uh, if you believe in such things and number one and number two just thank you so much for sharing your story it you know in, in some strange way debbie and i know you're going to appreciate this your loss of seven versus my loss of three somehow makes me feel better in some strange way um so i want to thank you for that i want to thank you for sharing um, and I just, I just want you to know that I'm grieving with you and, uh, it's hard to ever get over it. So what I've been doing is concentrating on good memories, on positive experiences that I remember with the people that I'm, I'm grieving. And, uh, you know, you're just so brave for sharing with us tonight and I'm not sure how you're getting through, but, um, you know, if you're sticking around later, uh, the end of the show, which is about a quarter to one, we're going to talk about this a little bit more. If you're still awake, you feel like calling me back, we can spend a bunch of time chatting because it sounds to me like you're just the person I need to talk to for my own therapy. So thanks so much for calling. It was, it's, it's wonderful. Victoria's tiny town, how a collection of shipping containers became a community. So shipping containers are becoming a thing now. People are using them to uh, convert uh, space, uh, make it turn them into homes, into shops, into kiosks at uh, vending uh, for vending at uh, trade shows and so on. Um, and it, it's now there's a community that has been built based on these shipping containers. And by the way, it's not just a big empty container. They're beautiful on the inside. They're, you know, all decked out and wired properly and insulated and so on. Uh, Tiny Homes Villages, it's a welcoming, uh, looks very welcoming on the outside with colorful murals adorning the sides of the shipping containers arranged in a square, which also serve as the perimeter of the facility. But the, it's at the entrance of the compound adjacent to the Royal Athletic Park um, and uh, with a controlled door, um, 
and ornaments and security guard keeping an eye on things. So it's um, an interesting place. Visitors enter a courtyard where a pair of picnic tables is arranged under a shelter uh, with raised planters and deck chairs. It's kind of a de facto gathering place for about the 30 residents that live there, uh, except for three women. The community is made up entirely of men, ranging in age from 22 uh, to 70. One of those guys, his name is Darren Heap. Uh, have a listen to uh, how he felt about moving into this tiny village. It's very exciting, actually, to be moving in. Um, I was in the hospital before this and living on the street before that. So this is definitely, like, wow to me. Well, there you go. So, uh, but if you can see the pictures of this facility, it's really quite, they're quite lovely. It's on, on a spring day, a resident could be sitting, seen sitting in the greenhouses that uh, serve as the community's uh, inhalation station. It's a place where you can sit and breathe in good air. It's behind glass. So if someone suffers from an opioid overdose, those walking by can see quickly and administer naloxone in case they're in need of help. Um, this other fellow, Legat, says uh, that uh, doesn't want to discuss his troubled past, but includes drug problems. He's so thrilled to be there and be a part of this, uh, this facility um, that um, he's one of the authors of the thing. He, he just says that he's become a minimalist daily day, uh, these days. Uh, no place to put stuff because, he, he, you know, the, the space is rather small. He invites us into his home. It's one half of a 40-foot shipping container. It's about 100 square feet and equipped with a bed, nightstand dresser, wardrobe, and a small refrigerator. They're all insulated with their own electric heater, but no cooking capacity in this particular facility. Um, remarkable story. Uh, my, my guest uh, this evening uh, is Leah Young. She's a director of housing and shelter with Our Place Society, uh, who are operating the Tiny Homes Village. And uh, what a wonderful story. Leah, thank you for joining us tonight. Hi there. Hi there. Thanks for having um, me. My pleasure. Crazy story. Love it. Saw the pictures, uh, looked it up online, looked more. Uh, first of all, I, I should know, I, I think that housing in shipping containers is a cool idea. I've always wanted to buy a piece of land somewhere and, and do that myself. My wife says I can't, so I'm not allowed, <laughs> but she let me buy new running shoes instead. Um, but on a serious note, it, it, it seems to be a futuristic idea, but one that makes so much sense. And I've said that here in, in, in Ontario and in Toronto, that we have so much extra space and land and an area that hasn't been developed yet. Why don't we just grab a whole bunch of containers and do exactly uh, what's going on there? So give us an idea, if you can, Leah, how, um, like, what sparked the idea to create this community? Was it just an idea that came to someone at some point? Or was this a part of a, a like a, a group of people that ad advised, to, you know, that this is the way to go? Yeah, it was, uh, I mean, it is a really fantastic idea. And mm -hmm. what is great about it is, I mean, a lot of us are in the field looking for opportunities to provide housing for especially those vulnerable folks on the street. But the, um, the idea for converting these shipping containers into homes is a really quick way to get a project started and a good launching um, pad for folks to get uh, on their feet and into you know, more permanent type housing, like we all have the luxury of having. But um, yeah, the, the idea came uh, early in, I think, 2020, um, right when we were in the midst of the COVID and the pandemic. And we were looking to really house a lot of folks quickly. A lot of encampments had um, popped up during COVID. And our province was trying to respond to them as quickly as possible to get everybody in a safe space. And the idea of these shipping containers came around. I mean, I can't, I can't say it's my idea. I wish it was, but it wasn't. <laughs> but it was a bunch of like-minded folks coming together and saying, what can we do? And that was the idea that was generated. It was a group of folks from the city of Victoria, from the Coalition to End Homelessness, and they brought the idea um, forward. Got a whole bunch of people together, and, and Arise, uh, sorry, Construction was part of that, um, and, and they were the ones who were, uh, generated the idea that, and actually did the, the work on it. But they raised $500,000 to the community um, to get these uh, the, the Tiny Homes Project started and uh, onto the parking lot where it is right now. So it was, it was, it's fantastic. So uh, it's on a parking lot, which means obviously yeah. it's movable at some point. Uh, which yeah. makes tons yeah. of sense. Uh, yeah. The half a million dollars—that's enough to to put it together, so you could basically house uh, these thirty people that are on site. Um, or was that just to kick off money and maybe 
it costs more. Like, give me an idea what what it costs to to put something like this together. That seems rather simple, but I'm sure it's not. Yeah, I mean, it will. That wasn't um, through our place society, but it was um, part of the city, and it was to get it kicked off. Arise, um, they put a lot of um, their own. They donated a lot of their time and um, energy to get these buildings um, constructed. And then the operating cost is something separate than the actual startup of it. But $500,000 did get it started and get it going. If someone that was listening right now wanted to donate, where would they go? Right now, I mean, that was the initial um, startup cost. We uh, could come to Our Place Society to donate to our services. Our Place Society has uh, uh, many offerings of housing and shelter, different types in the housing continuum, supportive housing, right from an, a nightly um, overnight mat um, program where people can come sign up and sleep on a mat, to tiny homes, to um, some of the pandemic responses in hotels situations and then to purpose build housing we provide we have a community center where we have lots of services we have um, three meals a day we have outreach services so there's a wide variety of what our place society in victoria um, that you can donate to it seems not just tiny homes yeah yeah perfect it seems to me though that um, this is not just a good idea um, you know you say it's kind of short term uh, housing so people you know just if you're listening uh, this is just a, a safe clean healthy way for us to help people that don't have permanent residence um, and maybe living in encampments as uh, as Leah was saying um, encampments in cardboard boxes under the bridge God forbid or tents and things like that mm-hmm. uh, not safe situations uh, but you know this is a model. When you talk about it and you talk about these kind of unique little units that are self-equipped and so on uh, with everything other than cooking uh, facilities, I mean, a place to sleep, sleep or probably a place to sit nicely and read, a place to, you know, uh, take something cold out of the fridge and have some snack and walk around outside. There's wash, uh, four or five washrooms, I think, and showers in different in buildings outside of these little tiny homes. Yeah. Why would this have to be something that's a temporary measure? We've got about a minute well, before we take a break here. Well, what I what I find is that um, there is a, t- a lot of different offerings for folks that are struggling and they're coming into shelters or other types of uh, temporary spots. Tiny Homes or Tiny Homes Village was a great idea because it gives them personal space. It gives them a room, a door to close and that private space, but it also gives with supportive housing services, it gives them the opportunity to work with our staff. You know, our staff are the best resource navigators, get them connected to the services that they may need and that they're looking right. for and get them started and then on their journey to that permanent housing that they are, are you know, down, are the, down the road, want down the road. So it's a good launching spot. They can work on their life skills. They can get connected with primary care or harm Amazing. reduction services or mental okay, health. Support. I- I'm talking about the tiny village uh, of uh, small container homes uh, where the um, people have a chance to live. There's 30, 30, a place for 30 residents. Homeless people have a chance to live here. And uh, it's a really cool idea. It's interesting that their, their association, the neighborhood uh, folks um, have been so uh, welcoming. We're going to get to that here in a second with my guest. I have a guest with me. Her name is Leah Young. She's a director of housing and shelter with Our Place Society. But have a listen here uh, to a real quick clip from uh, Becky Carlisle. She's a staffer with Our Place Society. and talks about how they integrate people into the village and what's taught to them and what's expected of them. Have a listen. A lot of people who are just not sure what to expect. So making sure that people are feeling safe, making sure that people know where things are, um, making sure people understand the guidelines for the community, and also trying to ask people to build the community with us. Oh, there you go. So uh, Leah Young, welcome back. She's the Director of Housing and Shelter at Our Place Society. Thanks so much for joining us and sticking around. Um, yeah. That's your colleague. That's your colleague, I assume, right? They're, they're yeah. 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 Um, she, go ahead. <laughs> no, no, she what? She, go ahead. She, yeah, she helped start up uh, um, Tiny Homes Village at the very beginning, and she uh, was great at bringing a lot of folks in. You love it? 
I mean, do you love what you're doing? Do you, do you think that this we're onto something here? I, I know long-term housing is the way to go, much more political, much bigger deal, takes tons more money, uh, neighborhood integration, all that nonsense, uh, But uh, which I think is just a complete waste of time. We should do everything we can to help everyone that we can. But um, you, you must love what, what's coming out of this because it's, it's replicable, right? You can do this again and again and again. I think that, and that's it. You can do it really quickly too. We're not waiting yeah. for buildings to be yeah. built and or yeah. buildings to be um, converted. It's a really quick solution, and I think it gives another option on that continue continuum of housing. So, it, you know, we're everybody can get in in some type of shelter, safe shelter, safe housing quickly. So I like it. We have a, a bunch of different types of housing, and this is one of them. That's a, it's a really good and really good to make a. Uh, it's small enough with 30 residents and our staff yeah, to build a really good, cohesive community. Yeah, I, I, you know, I run a treatment center for people with mental health and addictions facilities. We have several, but that we, uh, you know, we're, we're, you know, 10, 15 people, 16 people. It's a lovely mm. little community. It's a nice way to heal. 30 would work beautifully as long as we're not dealing with a ton of mental health issues. I'm sure, you know, you have your hands full to some degree. But um, I, I guess where I'm coming from here is uh, this is in some kind of community. Obviously, this isn't a, this isn't a parking lot in the middle of nowhere. Uh, and I read in the article, and I'm going to let you speak to it because I think you can do a better job than me. Uh, but it's um, the reception in the surrounding neighborhood uh, by, by this uh, housing association sounds like it was, you know, outstanding and very different than what we typically read. They invited people in. Well, why, why don't you tell the story? How did the neighbors um, in, in, in how did they sort of respond to their 30 new uh, their 30 new neighbors in the tiny village? The, the neighbors have been fantastic, and we've worked, uh, we meet with um, many of the representatives of, um, around in the neighbor and the condo association, the businesses, um, it, right close, right by tiny homes. We meet monthly and have, um, you know, discussions and how we can build community together and include everyone. But right from the beginning, uh, we had welcome signs placed oh, on people's wow. houses all around saying welcome to the neighborhood to our, oh, our wow. folks that were coming in. So it was, it was really fantastic response. Um, so um, we've been very grateful to have a, a really inclusive community. You know, what people don't understand, I'm sure you do, Leah, because, um, you know, you've been in this game. You've, you've been at this for a while, right? Is this your, this yes. has been your kind of your training and this is what you did sort of went to school for kind of thing or not so much? Yep, yep. I uh, my background is as psychiatric nursing, and I've been oh, in the okay. field for a long time, and it's just pulled me in, and I've stayed. <laughs> <laughs> well, then you'll appreciate what I'm about to say because I think you'll agree with me. When neighborhoods are more receptive and more welcoming and more in, embracing and more loving and open, the the idea of quote unquote crime in my neighborhood from those people that live in that place, you know what I mean, around the corner, that doesn't happen. It's when, it, you know, when, when you're dealing in communities where people are up in arms and they create a feud and they make people in the neighborhood that are walking from, let's say, one, one, uh, one shelter facility, let's say in downtown Toronto here, where I'm mm -hmm. most familiar, you know, walking from one facility to another, you know, and, and made to feel horrible about where they're, about who they are and where they're coming out of, even the fact that they're trying to make their lives better. That generally creates the strife and the grief that leads to the things that people complain about, I don't want in my neighborhood. So, mm -hmm. I, I, you know, as a, as a nurse and someone who's been doing this for a long time, it's the positive intervention and the positive influence that these communities are having that I think make it even that much better for folks that are in the tiny village. Correct? Yeah, I think they feel welcome, and I, I and, and there, it's not without challenges. And we we discuss this monthly with our um, advisory committee with the neighborhoods all together, and we have residents that join the meeting. So. It, it really shares um, different perspectives and views, and we really come together and collaborate on it and and try to um, see our neighbors, who they are and where they're coming from and their challenges and, and their successes as well. So when so we do it together, and, and, and it's great because of the size, it's 30 residents, so it, yeah. it, it, it really integrates well into a community. It's manageable, as we said before. Mm -hmm. um, where, where, where is this going for for you and for for your organization, uh, our Play Society? Are, are you planning another tiny village? Um, do you already have a location? Are you, you know, what's what's kind of your your, your midterm goals here? 
Well, the tiny, we have um, different offerings. I said, we're opening up one of our permanent um, built, uh, purpose-built buildings here um, within, I think it's in about four weeks, hopefully, um, construction-wise, and that will be coming online. But our tiny homes village is, um, because we have permits to um, license and permits that we have only a timeline to, will be coming to a close. The coalition, as I mentioned before, owns the actual units themselves. So I know they're looking to see what their next steps are with that. We're always happy uh, to operate housing, um, you know, and have our our, our services. Um, but it's all, always in, in, in fluidity motion about trying to see what's next coming down there. But right now we're operating other um, housing opportunities as well and shelters. Correct. Uh, but I, again, going back to the tiny village model, it seems mm-hmm. to be, I don't know what your purpose foot, purpose uh, built housing, you know, what the cost per square foot or cost per, per uh, resident is, but I think it'd be pretty hard to find housing for, for uh, 30 people at the same kind of cost that you've got available here. But I, I, I listen, I think it's great. I, I love what you're doing. Uh, I hope you can come back on here some more uh, another time and talk with us a little bit about uh, how you're, how you're expanding and the, and the, the job that you're doing. Uh, give us a, a real, like a, a minute on our place society, if you could, so people know a little bit more about your organization. Yeah, great. Um, and I'd be happy to come back anytime and talk about all our services that we offer at our place society. We do have housing. We do have shelters. We have a, a recovery um, center, um, uh, and it's a it's a great facility here on the island. Um, we have a community center with lots of services and outreach services to um, you know connect our folks that we're working with that vulnerable population and and get them connected with the services they really need. Amazing. I'm going to, uh, we, my wife and I plan a trip from uh, Alberta to, B- to BC next, uh, this summer. So uh, my goal is to end up in Victoria for two or three nights. So make, just come and check you guys out and see what's up and uh, shake, some ha- shake some hands and do a little hugging. I'd love to do that. Uh, I'm talking to, uh, to uh, Leah and uh, she, uh, Leah Young, she's a director of housing and shelter with Our Place Society and one of the people at their best. So is their entire organization. Thank you so much for joining us, Leah. I want to talk about working out, workout plan. Yep, a workout plan that um, you uh, should probably think about here because according to the experts, it's the time of the year when gloomy weather and New Year's Eve resolutions gone by the wayside leave many of us not feeling our best. This is the article. It says just a bit of exercise can improve your mental health. Scientists and psychologists say this is a Canadian press article from January 25th. Um, And um, there's there's really strong evidence that exercise can be beneficial to reduce depression and anxiety symptoms like Jennifer Heiss, the Canadian Research Chair in Brain Health and Aging in the Department of Kinesiology at McMaster University. And yeah, like 100% real exercise makes sense but listen to this famous character um and what their take is on uh when you can exercise and maybe how quickly you can do it maybe in your sleep leo play the clip for us would you please i'm not tired why would you think i was tired i ended up doing 25 minutes of sleep chin-ups on muscle memory alone tired terry still gets after it that's all i'm saying <laughs> sleep chin-ups so i i tell you that uh i don't think there's a way you can work out in your sleep per se but i'm not an expert maybe someone can call in and say they all they go to sleep thinking about working out and they wake up in the morning and their muscles are pumped i don't think it works like that but um obviously terry is uh, on the show brooklyn 99 a very funny uh, comedy if you happen to enjoy that kind of comedy but you know what we're you know when i have people in my practice either in my my my, my coaching practice and or in my mental health and, and addiction uh, practice whether it's a patient or or a client uh, the same same almost the same conversation right about eating well sleeping well exercise so i have a bunch of athletes and and pretty um uh, some up and coming um superstars in the world of sports uh, in my practice and my my coaching practice and you know as much as their workout regime is part of their whole routine because they are you know working to be the best of the best at what they do to join to be part of the olympics and become professional at some point and so on uh, and they're that good that they could get there 
um, with the help of uh, some good mental mental uh, coaching, which is really my part. Um, but you know, the, the exercise that I'm talking about is not the 45 minute or hour, hour and a half workout in the gym where you're pressing a lot of weight or using a lot of equipment, a lot of machinery to you know to get the job done. Talking about simple stuff, almost what we call jailhouse, what I like to call a jailhouse workout, you know, push-ups, sit-ups, a little stretching, yoga, you know, a little bit of yoga. You know, if you feel like you're, you're, you're a big burly guy and you say that you're looking at me going, nah, I don't do yoga. Listen, buddy, let me tell you something. Even for the biggest of, of, of bodybuilders, weightlifters, ex-jocks and, or current jocks, let me tell you about stretching. This yoga stuff, it's amazing. Dude, I was a boxer for a long time. If I if I couldn't do manly type workouts, I didn't do them at all. You know, skipping rope and doing all that cool stuff over my shoulder and like yeah, yeah. I'll, stretching, as I'm getting older, stretching, doing yoga stretches, it's sick. It does an amazing job of making you feel better, and it's easy peasy. You can do it anywhere. A piece of carpet works, or if you're lucky to have a little mat, that's good too. But Makes a big difference. So a little bit of exercise is what we're talking about. So stretching is a big part of it. Simple stretches, chin-ups, push-ups, sit-ups, things like that. There's strong evidence that that type of workout in particular has a big payoff in terms of your mental health. So if you're thinking of putting off what, you know, based on your exercise guidelines and, you know, you don't really need to achieve those, you need to achieve those not necessarily for your weight loss or, or, for, or for fitting into those, fa- you know, those favorite genes of yours. It makes your mind work better. You feel better. I have patients who call me in my in my mental health addiction practice who, who call us and talk about you know having a difficult day, you know. And the first thing I'll, I'll say to them is, are you know, are you hungry, angry, lonely, or tired, right? So once we identify, you know, one of all four of those or some of those four, and the next thing I'll say to them is, when's the next last time you had like any kind of workout? Well, I can't get to a gym, whatever. I'm you know, no. I said a workout like walking, riding a bike sit-ups, push-ups, stretches, any kind of workout. That reduces anxiety. I mean, for me, it reduces my anxiety by, I'd say, 70 to 75% if I'm having an anxious moment and I can do a couple of breathing exercises, a little bit of meditation and some stretching, gone. I go from a 10, like 10 being the highest level of anxiety, to a 2, like in 12 minutes, 14 minutes maybe. Like for real, right? So I'm absolutely convinced that the health of your mind, your 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 ability to get through the day, your ability to get through difficult times, your ability to manage stress. Yeah, come on, man. You're all looking at me going like, what the hell is he talking about? What I'm saying is simple workouts make your brain and make your mental health feel better. I have a, I have a bunch of, I'll tell you a couple of quick stories. So I have a bunch of younger people in my practice and in my mental health and addiction practice. And when, you know, when a 19 year old stops using drugs or alcohol or both, and then wants to continue to socialize for many of them, it's a very, very difficult process because it was like three shots of vodka and I'm good to go smoke a couple of joints. I'm good to go, you know, pop, uh, pop something, pop a Xanax or something. I'm good to go, you know, uh, do a couple of lines. I'm good to go. This is, you know, what they're saying to me. So now that they're clean and sober and working really hard at staying that way, they want, people want to continue to socialize. They're young, 19, 20, 21, 25, 30. People want to continue to be able to go out with that same courage, artificial courage, you know, liquid courage if it was alcohol and then substance-driven courage if it's other things like, you know, up your nose and your arm, down your throat, whatever. All that stuff just to get the courage to go to that first date, show up, Right. So exercise, I've got a bunch of people that do push-ups and sit-ups before they go out and it reduces their anxiety substantially enough that they're able to go and meet and not have to worry about having that drink. Now, that also has to do with where you meet. You know, they meet in a restaurant, they meet for lunch or for brunch uh, or for early dinner, never in a bar or a place where alcohol could be served. So ideally, there's no option for she'll have one and he won't or he'll have one and she won't. You know, that's a whole different conversation we can have another time. But exercise reduces anxiety every time. The health organization, World Health Organization, recommends that adults between 18 and 64 should do at least 150 minutes of moderate intensity aerobic physical activity per week. So I don't know how many of that were. I don't do great math. Maybe somebody can help me with that and text it to me. I don't know how many minutes a day that is, but 100 and what's that, 20 minutes, a little 
20 minutes a day. I guess simple math, 20, 150 divided by seven is what, 20? Gets you to 140, close enough, right? Moderate intensity aerobic physical activity. So what's moderate intensity aerobic activity? I'm, I'm telling you, I think it's, you know, things like walking, you know, brisk walks, a little bit of a jog, a bike ride, if you have a bike or a stationary bike. And, and again, worse comes to worse, simple things like, I mean, not even worse comes to worse. I think it's a better exercise. You know, get on your back, do some, some, some pedaling. Uh, when's the last time you did the bicycle? Remember back in school, you got on your back and get your legs up a little bit bent and then you kind of rotate them like they're, they're, you're, you're, you're cycling, like you're pushing pedals. That stuff works. Like 100%, that stuff works. Throw some sit-ups in there, a little stretching, a couple of yoga moves. You're good. 20 minutes goes by before you know it. And by the way, if you only got 10 minutes, okay, too. It's the attempt. It's, this, it's the idea that that's your go-to to help you feel better. That's your go-to solution. Before you have the three or four shots or smoke the joint or do the lines or whatever else you think you need to have the courage to go out and 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 overcome something that you have horrible anxiety around, which is, you know, driven by fear and insecurity and all that stuff again for another show. Right. But what I'm saying here is that if the simple exercise portion of this process is enough to make you feel well enough to get out and go do what you got to do, I do it. I'm not making it up. I'm not reading it in an article and talking to you about it. I do this stuff. Half of the stuff that I, well, three quarters of the stuff that we talk about on this show, about how to be at your best. And I don't believe I'm at my best, but I'm working at it. Half the stuff I do, three quarters of the stuff I do is, is stuff that I do myself that we talk about here. So it's not like I'm saying, hey, you know, give this to the experts say, right? So uh, next, another expert here says, uh, Dr. Uh, Zarina Gioni, Giannone is a Vancouver psychologist. And um, they go on to say, I've encouraged people to just do really small things things that are already built into the world, like going for walks, doing some of that exercise within the home, using body weight, things like that. Well, it's exactly what I'm saying. <laughs> you know, 15 minutes twice a week, 15 minutes three times a week, it makes a big difference. There's a huge shift in people that used to work out in the gym and that, you know, since the pandemic are now working out at home. A, they're finding it easier on their bodies. B, they're finding it a lot less easier on their, a lot less uh, strain on their on their pocketbook. You don't have to pay to be part of a gym. And you can do it any time. And you can do push-ups and sit-ups three times a day, four times a day if you want. Back in my boxing days, I would do 100 push-ups in, 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 in two sets of 50. So anyway, I'll be back soon. Soon we come back from big break here. We're going to talk about how to get out of your comfort zone. But I'm telling you, man, exercise is the way to a better night's sleep and a lot less stress. Welcome back. Thank you for joining us. Um, we have a uh, just a, a real uh, interesting show here going forward. We've got more stuff to talk about. But in our Champions um, segment um, this evening, I want to talk about um, sort of getting out of your comfort zone. How do you get out of your comfort zone? What is a comfort zone, right? That's a place where you kind of sit inside, where you don't want to really challenge yourself because... You know, it's you're more comfortable. Hence the term comfort zone. You're more comfortable in a, in a place in your in your head in your space that you know works for you. Well, it's okay, but it's important to step outside of that comfort zone. It's like thinking out of the box. We were talking about earlier when we came to homelessness and such. Um, it, it's it, it's the thinking out of your box that you do for yourself. It's getting yourself out of your own comfort zone. Getting outside of those squares you know that square that you kind of sit inside perhaps sometimes and you have a hard time finding your way out right because frankly the 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 whole key to being able to um, move forward is to try new things right to try new things and some you do well and perhaps some you may not do so well and it's the ones that you don't do so well at 
that help you grow because it's the ones that you do well at that, you know, you enjoy yourself and it's fun, but the growth really comes from trying and trying and trying until you get it right. Right. It's the making of a mistake and then converting that mistake to something, uh, something positive, right. Which is uh, an end result that you like. So here's some steps, six actionable steps that you can take to help get outside of your comfort zone. Okay. So we got a little bit of time, uh, we're going to stick around here and do this for a little bit. So pay attention and see if it helps you. So measure what's inside and outside your comfort zone. So take a moment to reflect and ask yourself what it feels like to live within your comfort zone. Write down all the positive and negative aspects of your current situation and how it makes you feel. So look at your life and, and look at the negative and positive aspects of that life and then write those things down. Now, all the things that are outside of your comfort bubble, the things that don't really fit inside your comfort box, so to speak, these can be your aspirations, goals, all the things that you'd like to experience further in life. Write those down. And if you feel like you've lived outside your comfort zone and pursued these desires, that's great. But for those that have a hard time finding that motivation, here's how you do it, right? Number one, you set personal goals. We did that a couple of weeks ago in our champions uh, segment here, uh, talking about goal setting and how to set goals, um, set smart goals that will help you expand your comfort zone. So for example, getting a degree in something perhaps um, within, uh, you know, getting a degree in something, getting a diploma, learning something, uh, you know, maybe school is something you're not comfortable in, but going back for some form of, of upgraded education is uh, uh, something you've always liked to do, you know, give it a shot. Take a simple course, you know, I tell people to take a, like take a cooking course or, you know, take a, you know, a, a you know, a mechanic for, you know, a, a mechanics course for, you know, for the average person who wants to learn a little bit more about how to keep their cars and, and stuff like that maintained. You know, let's take a little course. You don't have to go get your master's degree. It doesn't have to be a whole university thing. It can just be something, right? Take action. Here's number three. Take action one step at a time. So living in your comfort zone can seem like a difficult task from time to time. Overthinking it and looking too far ahead can feel overwhelming for a lot of people, causing you, causing all of us to procrastinate. So what we try to do here is we stop overthinking things, right? Stop thinking of the reasons why, right? You know, it's really easy to find out why you, want, why you don't want to do something. It's really easy to convince yourself, I don't want to do this because... And you list all the reasons why it's not going to work for you. Okay, so do me a favor. Don't do that this week. And then next week you can text me or call us and let us know how you made out in this same segment if you'd like. Give us a call. Um, and we'd like to hear from you. So I'd like you to move outside your comfort zone this week and see what it's like. Try to just do something a little different. Try something a little different. Maybe it's a food, right? Maybe it's just something you haven't eaten before. Maybe you've never had, I don't know, let's say Vietnamese cooking. Um, which is delicious, by the way, you know, maybe you just step outside your comfort zone a little bit and, and try some, some new dishes, something you haven't eaten before. Maybe see a, see a movie that's a little different than something you might've seen before. Go do a, go do something in terms of, uh, of, of an activity like hatchet throwing is something I kind of started to do a while ago. It's a lot of fun. It's, it's, it's not easy, but it's a lot of fun. It's different. I never would have thought about it. Um, but it's really cool. It's a, it's a cool way to spend time with friends for sure. And so that, that, you know, it's something you can do that's different, right? That's the whole idea outside of your comfort zone, find your sweet spot, right? So there's a space for you, right? There's a place for you that that's comfortable, stretching yourself to a comfortable place, not stretching yourself to a place where you're uncomfortable, where the, the fear or the anxiety around that stretch is so great that it takes away from the benefit of the whole idea of stretching beyond your comfort zone. So we do it to help us get better. We do it to help us get to be at our best. And how do we do that? We just stretch ourselves a little bit. One more thing, one, you know, one step towards a direction that you might not have taken before and just try it one big toe at a time, right? And then a couple more toes and the next thing you know, bingo, you're doing it, right? Find a sweet spot, find your sweet spot. That's very important. You got to it's got to work for you, not what everyone else is doing. It's got to work for you. The fifth thing here is you got to cultivate a positive mental attitude. When it comes to leaving your comfort zone, you got to have the right idea. Hey, I'm going to give this a shot because I'm really excited about it. A positive mental attitude means approaching every situation and challenges in life with your optimism, with optimism, feeling good about it. How to have a positive mental attitude when you're faced with uncertainty. Here's how you do it. Have compassion for yourself when you make a mistake. It's never failure if you try something. The only failure is when you don't try something. 
You frame your challenges as opportunities. These are opportunities, not challenges. Set ambitious goals, but not so ambitious that you're uncomfortable and it makes you, causes you to breathe heavily because you're not sure if you're going to get there, right? See each opportunity that you don't do well as a lesson, like we said, said before. And challenge any of your negative beliefs to turn that positive into positive thinking. Turn that negative self-talk into positive self-talk. And that helps a lot with getting through these types of things, right? Uh, hang out with like-minded people, people that uh, are thinking like you, that uh, have that same mindset, are trying to be best, the best that they can be. How to get out of your comfort zone and start living? Well, you know, you always do the things you wanted to do. That's where you start with something you've always wanted to do. Take on a fitness challenge, maybe clean up, uh, change your routine, expand your professional uh, skill set, uh, choose a fear and face it. Some people do skydiving, never, I'll never do it. Bungee jumping, something like that, right? Uh, travel somewhere new, that's a way to get out of your comfort zone. Go to a place that you've never been to that maybe you never thought about going to, but would be interested if you could set it up in a way that works for you, right? Taking on a fitness challenge, we, we've learned in our earlier segment today that uh, this evening that uh, fitness is a great way towards good mental health. You know, changing up your routine is something, you know, just change your habits a little bit. Get up a little earlier, maybe uh, do a little bit more in your morning hours, right? Um, these are things that really happen. And when you, when you challenge yourself and you get outside your comfort zone, you build and you increase your resilience, you increase your confidence. You increase the ability for self-actualization, looking at yourself in a positive way. It does so much for us once we give ourselves that shot outside of that place we normally sit in because we're afraid to step outside it. And it's so important, right? It's so important. And we end, then you end up living your life with less regrets. You know, I wish I would have done this. I wish I would have done that. You know, I, I find it difficult for people who live their life in a way and then their life gets old you know as they get older and life moves on and um they get closer and closer to later later you know 70s 80s 90s hundreds these days uh, thankfully a lot of people are living into their hundreds you never want to kind of go to bed at night going you know i wish i would have done this or i wish i would have said that or i wish i could have you know would have could have should have we never want to find ourselves there because it's just an uncomfortable place to sit so how do you become a champion how do you do that all of the things that we've been talking about over the last number of weeks, but getting outside your comfort zone, trying to push yourself to just be a little bit better. Being at your best means stretching outside your original comfort zone to a place that perhaps isn't uh, where you sit today. But once you get there, you might like it. It's a cool place to be. We'll talk about the, uh, the machines basically um, vending machines. The article says machines that dispense HIV testing kits, clean needles, and naloxone launch in Canada. The machines that dispense HIV testing kits, clean needles, and other harm reduction supplies have been installed in Atlantic Canada with plans for 100 in the next three years across the country, which continues to grapple with HIV cases and opioid crisis. Uh, Sean O'Rourke uh, is a scientist with MAP Center of Urban Health Solutions, says the project started when he was working to get the first self-testing kit for HIV approved and available in Canada. Health Canada approved the test in November 2020, which is remarkable. And uh, Rourke said that the next step was making it available to those who need it. MAP Center is affiliated with Toronto's St. Michael's Hospital here in Toronto. Rourke said 10% of people in Canada with HIV don't know it. That's about 7,000 people. Those people aren't benefiting from any kind of treatment. Uh, there are other machines in Canada that uh, dispense uh, medications. Uh, Joey Yo, who is with his dog Dink, live in a cool aid society supportive housing facility on Victoria's Douglas Street, known as the former Tally Ho Hotel, uh, mostly a drinker. Uh, but now um, that you can say uh, a machine in the lobby of the Kool-Aid building has given him life back. They call it hydromorphs, but they're dilaudid, uh, says Joe. It's a safe supply dispensing machine, reading the palm print of the user, dispensing a day's worth of drugs, uh, safe drugs, to help him get through his day. My guest this evening has uh, been with on our show before. He is an expert. When it comes to this kind of stuff, his name is Mark Tindell. He's a doctor, MD. Uh, he's a professor at the University of British Columbia School of Population and Public Health and the former executive director of the BC Center for Disease Control. He's actually an infectious disease specialist and an epidemiologist with a focus on urban health and addiction. Uh, Mark, welcome back to the show. Thank you so much for making yourself available this evening. 
Okay, great to be here. Yeah, man. Um, we won't get into the cool place you're at, but we'll do that maybe offline sometime. But uh, travel safe, know okay. that you're uh, in in a good place. So, um, you know, we were on. Uh, you and I chatted some time ago. Um, I'd have to go back in my records to, to to make you know tell you exactly when, but I'm sure you probably remember. <clears throat> we were talking about the vending machines uh, that were dispensing medications. Um, for that matter, right? Um, so here yep. we're talking about a machine that's the you know it's 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 dispensing HIV testing, clean needles, and naloxone. The ones we talked about that uh, you're involved with, the My Safe Society program, um, actually dispenses medications, if I can remember. But My Safe Society has been received as a success by many. Could could we see your programs expanding to other locations, other provinces, such as this machine that uh, Map Center for Urban Health is looking at? Uh, at rolling out, or are you guys doing this together in some way, or how's that working? Uh, no, I listened to your intro. I I, I know Sean O'Rourke from way back, so um, I I, re I know he's was uh, um, sort of uh, using uh, rapid testing to try and get that out there. So I'm, but I'm not familiar with his machines. Um, but as you know, our our machines are uh, there's four of them um, operational. One is about to start in Winnipeg, and um, it's really to address the toxic drug supply that's uh, been killing so many people across Canada. How's that going, Mark? Uh, when we talked last, uh, it was, uh, I think, you. I'm not sure how many units you had, uh, but um, you were getting some pretty positive results. Is that still sort of faring out that way uh, now that it's been out there for a bit? Yeah, well, uh, yeah, the first machine's now been there for over three years. So uh, it's been, uh, I think, highly successful. We have quite a um, comprehensive evaluation going on. And so people are just getting their follow-up interviews now. So, though, you know, some of this will be in the scientific literature. But, um, you know, we've hardly lost anybody to, um, uh, to the program as far as... Uh, you know, uh, non-adherence or they, it wasn't working for them. So pretty much everybody that's ever been enrolled is still on the program. Uh, there's been nobody diving overdose. Um, and most, you know, I can say literally most people have uh, had very positive impacts on their lives by having access to a safer, regular supply of uh, hydromorphone. Maybe people can understand them, help people understand, my, my, my listeners understand a little bit better. Uh, so we're talking about hydromorphone, which is a, an opioid of sorts, right? Um, and yeah. using, that, using that to counter, I guess, the uh, fentanyl uh, issues with fentanyl, dirty heroin, dirty everything on the street. Um, it's just, it's not a, I, I know people that are using Dilaudin um, and hydromorph in, in, in recovery. Uh, they don't get the same high but they don't get sick and they don't get sick and they don't feel like they need to go out and rob, steal and cheat to get the street drugs. And they feel better knowing they're not going to die from whatever it is they're using. Um, are you, so in your program, are you finding that people are staying on the Dilaudin or on the hydromorph or um, are you, do you folks work towards weaning them from that to, to zero sort of instead of, uh, instead of, um, you know, uh, using Suboxone or, or, or drugs such as, you know, such as you know, methadone, things like that. Um, are you working towards getting them away from the drug or just is your goal just to keep them on a safe drug supply? Uh, right now, my goal is to keep them on a safe drug supply. I mean, it, um, our experience is that there have been people that have weaned themselves off and are, are not using any opioids at all. And so it's given them the opportunity to do that. If you're spending your time uh, searching for drugs desperately every day, you hardly have time to think about that. So the, the main benefit of having a steady source of these drugs is that people can uh, focus on uh, getting their lives back together. And that's, uh, that's my prime, uh, prime objective. When they enter the program, um, that is what they're told. I want them not, you know, I want them um, have an alternative than the fentanyl on the street. Um, almost everybody of the hundred or so people currently on the program have had an actual overdose before, and some have been, you know, near death. Um, so uh, people are, you know, afraid of what's on the street and really uh, value having an alternative. Uh, when you say it doesn't get them high, I mean, probably it's, you know, uh, it could be best described as somewhere between methadone and uh, fentanyl. So it, uh, people don't get the same, uh, 
uh, high euphoria that they might get from fentanyl. But most people do feel uh, um, some euphoria and some relief when they uh, take the hydromorphone as opposed to methadone or suboxone where uh, uh, it does push back on the drug sickness that people have without opioids, but it uh, isn't designed to really give them any sort of uh, um, positive feeling or euphoria. So hydromorphone definitely does when you uh, when people take enough of it. Right. And are you, in, in your dosage, or is, it a, is it the same dosage for all through the machine? Or is it, I guess it can't be specific to the user, right? Well, you know, my approach, which is somewhat different from uh, other safe supply programs that use hydromorphone in Vancouver, it's totally a discussion between myself or the other prescriber and what people feel that they need. It's their medications. Um, I'm, it doesn't matter to me whether they take eight pills a day or 16 pills a day or 24 pills a day, really. Um, the object, objective is to uh, uh, prevent them from having to buy uh, fentanyl in an alley somewhere. So I, I, you know, I have a, we start with, we start everybody at a similar dose, but um, we're in constant communication. How's it going? Um, and many people will say, well, it's helping a lot, but um, I still would benefit from another two or four pills and uh, it's up to them really. So, you know, there's certain limits, but it, interestingly, when I leave it open to them, um, most people kind of top out around the same amount. And uh, it's not that, you know, every week yeah, people are yeah. begging me for more. For you, my guest this evening is Dr. Mark Tyndale. He's uh, Tyndale, excuse me. He's the founder of My Safe Society. We're talking about vending machines that dispense drugs, HIV tests, and so on. Uh, Mark, thanks for sticking around and welcome back. Um, the, um, the 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 issue around these machines that we're talking about, and I and I totally get that your goal uh, your goal is to just keep people safe, keep people alive. If they're going to use drugs, at least use safe drugs. Um, and and I, I'm with you there. Talk to me about the attempt to. Uh, and I, I know I came at it earlier. Not sure it's in your it's in your bailiwick, but the attempt to kind of move them towards counseling, support, um, other things, education, uh, um, better housing, employment. Is there something around that, or is this a machine that stands alone, does what it's supposed to do, and doesn't really have a connection to quote unquote a live body? So perhaps maybe something with a camera in it, so that people could see each other. I don't know. Like, where does this go beyond just the dispensing, or is that enough? No, I mean, um, you know, I've had 25 years of experience working the downtown east side. There's, uh, there's many clinics, many counselors, many hospitals, you know, there's no lack of service in this particular community. And uh, still, a very large proportion of people remain outside of any care. And the reason is that yeah. We've criminalized, stigmatized, um, and isolated people, and they don't have real access to it. And until they have the opportunity not to be hustling drugs and hiding from police all the time, um, yeah. they're never going to get these services. So to me, this is the first step of allowing people to access those services. We have the staff at MySafe. Obviously, I see everybody who's in the program. Uh, there's nurses and community workers associated with the MySafe program. The people using the machine have more support than any other services around, but it's at their choosing. So uh, we're always there to talk to them. We're always there to refer them to other services. Uh, people know that. We know where they are every day. I mean, you have, if you're just attending a regular clinic and you have like monthly appointments, you know, we have no idea where people, what people are doing this way. They, people come out every day. Uh, we know, uh, you know, when they use the machine, exactly the time of day and uh, they can uh, always contact us. So, uh, so there's really, uh, this is an opening for them to, for those other services. So, you know, one of the misconceptions of this machine is somehow all we're doing is, you know, letting anybody just go and get drugs and that's it. That, that is so far from the truth. And to me, this is a way to engage people in a very, uh, they're in control. It's an autonomous thing. It's much different than going to a pharmacy every day and having to explain yep. yourself and yep. Yep. get your medication. Yep. 
Uh, if you're having a bad day and you don't want to talk to anybody, you don't talk to anybody. You just go get your stuff and you go. So it's uh, to me, it's an opening the door to many people uh, to get these other services. I think that's a brilliant, uh, a brilliant answer. And uh, uh, I'm really glad you're able to share that. How long does it take uh, for someone to actually be accepted into the program? So let's say I, I, I'm someone who's got an opioid addiction and uh, other issues of obviously driving that perhaps uh, more likely. And um, I want to get accepted into your program. How does that work? Well, it's really easy. I mean, the criteria to me is if you uh, use fentanyl every day. And as I said at the beginning, uh, <clears throat> I'd say 90% of people have had their own experience with an actual non-fatal overdose. So people are uh, at great risk. Three of the machine, three of the four machines in British Columbia are in residential housing units. So they're open to anybody who lives in those residential housing units. So as soon as they want to get in the machine, they can. And there's one at a supervised injection site, and that's the one that's kind of open to all comers, but we have people around there all the time. And if somebody approaches uh, one of the operators and said they're interested in the machine, uh, that same day or the next day, they can meet one of the staff, uh, will determine eligibility and if hydromorphone is the right drug for them. And uh, we scan their palms in, do a, a urine baseline urine test, do a, a brief uh, questionnaire and a consent form, and, uh, and Bob's your uncle. So the next day you can uh, you can start getting it. These machines that are uh, that are put out um, is there a concern about the vandalism because they're in housing units, for example, uh, or anywhere kind of in a in a sort of public publicish kind of setting? Is there a concern about people breaking in? One would think that you know the way people break into uh, you know the rash of break-ins into pharmacies and doctors' offices and such, where they can you know folks that are that are in desperate uh, need of this type of uh, stuff, this type of street drug, medication, whatever, to try to get them over that bad place. Um, are you concerned about people breaking into the machine itself? And how do you prevent that? Yeah, no, no concern at all. I mean, the ones in the housing unit are in the lobby of a hotel. So, um, you know, there's people around all the time and cameras and stuff. Um, the people need to understand that these are not like a, a chip machine where it's, you know, all the products are displayed and behind some glass and you boot the thing in and take the stuff. It's like more like an ATM. It's an 800 pound yeah. metal machine yeah. with multiple locking systems, an alarm system. It's bolted to the floor. I mean, we haven't had any indication anybody's even tried to uh, break into the machine. Um, and it's not, a con not, shouldn't be a concern at, at all. Uh, if I guess if you backed your pickup truck through the wall of the building and uh, put it, you know, got 20 people to load up the machine. I've, I've had a lot of hands-on experience lifting this machine in place and sure. uh, trying to get it yeah. upstairs and sites. It's oh, a boy. big thing. So uh, it's, I think people should think of it more like an ATM. And, uh, and the other bizarre idea people have is these, this machine, the drugs are worth so much. I mean, they're not worth that much. I mean, you know, the, the police reports we get for bus use like millions of dollars and stuff. It's just not true. One dilated pill is 32 cents at the pharmacy. Um, the street value yeah. of one of those pills is probably between one and two dollars. So, you know, gotcha. if you're a serious criminal, this is not this would not be your uh, target. Gotcha. Um do you see then down the road the initial you know article we talked about coming out of the gate the initial topic was about this uh, this new machine that was coming out with HIV tests which I think by the way is very cool that there's a way to test for that now um, and the naloxone uh, clean needles and so on do you kind of see that kind of side by side with you know you kind do, do you see the future um, Dr. Tendell do you, do you see the future of like a vending machine lobby? Uh, with various forms of things we can dispense to people to help keep them alive? Uh, yeah, I think, I mean, the the machine, like since we're dealing with narcotics in the MySafe machine, I think people expect, you know, the biometrics and the safety and the, and the tight recording of all the medication that's distributed. When it comes to harm reduction services and or harm reduction um, things and uh, HIV testing, uh, you don't really need that kind of security. Uh, you need, you know, um, a box, like we have a box of needles just sitting beside the machine. If people want them, they just take them. So, um, gotcha. but having said that, um, 
anything that's highly stigmatized and people are reluctant to come forward, uh, getting these things through an a, anonymous source like a like a machine, I think has uh, has a lot of potential. So I I'm I'm totally uh, on side, and yeah, I could see a lobby with uh, the harm reduction in one machine. But uh, my own feeling is these uh, uh, th- these accessories are so cheap. We want them out there as much as possible. So right. having to keep them in a locked in a machine seems somewhat unnecessary. I would think so too. Thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Mark Tindall. He's the founder of My Safe Society. I'm going to be out your way in the summer. Hopefully, you and I can hook up for a coffee. I'd love to see you face to face. He's an expert on harm reduction and public health. Just a guy really doing the best he can to help keep people alive. Really, someone at their best, as is his whole organization and everyone that's involved in the process of trying to keep people who are marginalized, stigmatized, and in a bad way from killing themselves. Um, truly against their will. Their, their desire is not to, to, do, uh, to do these drugs and to die. They're just trying to get past the really painful time in their life, that moment, that sick, that second, that afternoon. And uh, this is just one great way to support them in, 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 you know, in, a, in a user-friendly way, I guess is probably the best way to look at it. But uh, Dr. Tindell, he's, uh, he is the guy when it comes to this kind of stuff. And uh, I know he's on vacation now or somewhere around the world, and he's taking the time to talk to us. So uh, we love that. Um, he's a good friend of the show for sure. 